I'd like to ask you to turn with me, if you would, to Genesis, the 14th chapter. Last week we were in Genesis 13. We're going to continue then again with uh, our study in Genesis as I've been working my way through this book as I have opportunity to share and speak uh, here at, uh, at Twin Brooks. So let me uh, ask you to turn to Genesis 14 with me in to stand if you would. It's, it's going to be a shorter text than it could have been because I'm not going to read the entire chapter. And let me just confess at the very beginning why or not we are not reading the first seven verses if you just glance down and look at the text, just look for just a second and see what is it that you see before your eyes. But a whole host of names that are hard to pronounce, who are ruling and reigning over areas that are hard to pronounce. And I just simply decided, I'm not going to read that this morning. I'm, I'm going to share with you in the context of the message what is happening there and pick up with verse 8 and, and press on. So let's, let's read verse 8, we'll pray, and then begin together. I can't escape all the names. I'll take the best shot I can at some of them. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and king of Zobalim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Cado. Kedor Leomar. I, I said that I don't know how many times before I came, and I still can't say it right. King of Elam, title king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions, provisions rather, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskol and Anar, Aner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Finally, a name we can pronounce easily. Then he brought back all the possessions and brought, also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and people. After his return from the defeat of Kedar Laomer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. 
But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Please be seated. Let's bow our heads if we could. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace once again this morning and recognize how desperate and how needy we are for you and for your spirit to undertake for us. I pray, Father, for each person that is here, for you know the context of each person's life, the things that they're going through, the triumphs and the trials that are represented there. And how thankful we are, Father, that you are one who holds us in your hand. And that the Lord Jesus Christ is one who clings to us and is closer than a brother. And I pray, Father, for each person that is here, that a measure of your grace would be dispensed to them today. And that you would encourage each heart that is here. May each heart feast upon your word. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would have your hand upon me, once again recognizing how desperately it is that I need you. I recognize the frailty of my flesh, the feebleness of my words, the incapabilities that lie within me. But Father, I would cry out to you today and pray that your spirit would undertake for me today and that you would give me orderliness of thought and conciseness of speech and that through these words that are spoken here in this place at this time, that you would be honored and glorified. For we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I would like us to consider three aspects in the message today. I would like us to briefly spend some time on an introductory an introduction to this passage itself. And then this morning I, I only have basically two points to make. Under the uh, second point, I have two subpoints, and under the third, I have three. And I think it is possible that we will make it through what we'll, we'll see. But uh, we're going to have some introductory comments of the passage, kind of gather us together as to what is happening here. And then we're going to look at the Christian and conflict in the world. The Christian conflict in the world, and underneath that, conflict and war. And secondly, conflict or contending for righteousness or righteous purposes in the world. And then the third point, the Christian and conflict in the spiritual realm. The conflicts we face, the triumphs that we gain, and the means by which triumph and triumphs are secured. We come to our text this morning and we saw in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham is called of God and he is born again. His life is changed. And after his life is changed, he discovers something that is not peculiar to the Christian life itself, that he is exposed immediately to trials. And the trials come to him 
not because he's been disobedient, but the trials come to him because that's the path oftentimes that obedience takes. Oftentimes we have trials because we are obedient. Quite contrary to uh, some who would tell us otherwise, that if we're obedient and we are faithful in the things that God calls us to, then surely our trials will be lessened in this life. But we who have lived a period of time know that that's not true. I, I discover that true the older I get. My mother used to tell me, uh, the older I get, sometimes the more difficult life becomes. And when I was younger, I didn't understand it, but now that as I'm older, I understand what she was saying. And Abraham was living a life of obedience. He comes into the kingdom, and there's a certain preserving of God's grace that undertakes him in a very special and a very supernatural way. But immediately following his call, God says, I'm going to lead you out to another land. And I am going to take you to a place that you do not know. He just kind of points him in a direction. And Abraham begins to follow God's direction in the direction, or uh, his, his uh, directives in the direction of Canaan. But he has this long uh, journey that is ahead to him, many, many miles. And as he is in the process of making that journey, his life is one that is constantly under threat because of the robbers and the thieves that he would have uh, been exposed to in the midst of his journey. And yet in the midst of it all, aware of that threat that was there before him, I'm sure oftentimes he'd lay his head down at bed at night, he would think about that which was there, and yet at the same time God's grace undertook for him and God protected him in the midst of that long journey. Well, he arrives to Canaan. Finally, he's gotten to the place where God said he would take him. And when he arrives at that place, this spacious land, you would think that immediately he'd be able to rest. But in fact, when he arrives, a great famine comes upon this land. And there's not enough food and there's not enough water to sustain him and his family and his livestock, those that are with him. And so he has this challenge, what shall I do? He goes down to Egypt, and when he goes down to Egypt, he falters, he, he fails, he falls into sin, he has a lack of trust. So you see, trial is coming in his life, and in the midst of that time when he's there, God comes to him and draws him back to himself. Abraham is restored in his faith, and he returns from Egypt to Canaan. And upon arrival, he's, he's experienced so much abundance, and so has Lot in Egypt, that there's not enough space to support both families, and so they must divide, separate, so that needs might be met for each one's family and flocks. In chapter 13, we discover that Abram is a man of peace. He makes peace with Lot in the things that he says and does in the pact that they make between them. And then we come to Genesis chapter 14. I hope that introduction has not been too long. Genesis chapter 14, we discover that inasmuch as Abram is presented to us as a man of peace in Genesis 13, we now discover Abram as a man of war. He's a man of conflict. When we come to the text in the first eight verses that are identified for us, the scriptures tell us about five kings. And these are five great kings. 
These five kings came from the region of Mesopotamia, the area of Iran and Turkey. And they were considered great kings. They governed regions. And in the passing of time, these, five, these four kings, rather, who were led by, let's call him Chuck. Chuck. Who comes down in, into the area of Canaan and Palestine, and he conquers that area. And the reason why he comes down to conquer that area is for two primary, actually two primary reasons. They're plural. The first is that in their area they had no copper, they had no metals, but in this area there was copper. And they desired to have copper. They desired to have copper so that they could make utensils. They desired to have copper so that they could make weapons for warfare. And so they come down to that region and they conquer the peoples of Canaan. But they also come down to conquer the peoples of Canaan because they lie, the land of Canaan lies in direct, in direct obstruction of, of their path or in the direct path of getting to Egypt. And so they conquer this land so that they can have travels through Canaan to get to Egypt so that they might carry on trade and what have you. So these are the two reasons, primarily, historians believe, that these kings came down and conquered these people. Now the scriptures tell us that these four kings conquered the people in that region and they reigned and ruled over them for 12 years. And during that period of time, the inhabitants of Canaan had to pay a tax. They had to pay tribute to those that ruled over them. And after 12 years, they got tired of paying this tax. And they wanted to throw off the oppression that they were experiencing. And so they decided, we will revolt against these other kings. And those that revolt are represented by five kings. And these five kings are lesser kings. They're kings that rule over cities, not larger regions, but cities. And they determined that they will band together against these four kings that are some distance away. They will rebel against them, that they will overthrow the oppression that they're experiencing. Now, it is their hope, we might conjecture, that they are thinking, these kings, these four kings are so far away that maybe they'll just let it go. Maybe they're just so busy with what it is that they're doing that they'll let us alone and we'll be able to, to kind of uh, remove ourselves from their control and, and have more control over our own lives. So that's their, that's their plan, perhaps. This will happen. But unfortunately, they miscalculate the response of these four kings. They're not about to give up the tribute that they are receiving from the Palestine area, the area of Canaan, and they're not about to give up their rule. And so what they do is they gather together their armies, these four kings, these four greater kings, gather together their army and they begin to march towards Canaan. Now the soldiers that they take with them most likely were very trained in warfare. These were nations that conquered people. 
These were warriors. These were individuals who were trained and knew how to fight. The problem was that in the context of Canaan, there were five cities, but they were smaller, and their armies probably were not so well trained. How is it that we might come to this conclusion? We might come to this conclusion because we consider the lifestyle that was existence in the, existent in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah itself. You remember what it was. It was a society that was filled, what the scriptures tell us, with wicked people. Individuals who were given over to licentious styles of living. And when we look at the context of the history of peoples, when that type of attitude pervades a society, undiscipline comes in. And the result is the strength and the fiber of individuals that is kind of extracted from them. So it is most likely that these five kings that are gathering together to fight against these four kings find themselves at quite a disadvantage. Not only in the context of spiritual battle, but just, they're, they're just as, there's no experience, there's no strength that they have to combat against these people. So they determined this that what we will do is we will fight them around the area of the Dead Sea. Now, the area of the Dead Sea was an area that had uh, bitumen or tar pits near. And they go to this area because they knew that area. And they assumed that their adversaries did not know that area, and they were hopeful that in the context of their battle that these four kings would somehow, in the midst of the battle, be swallowed up by these tar pits, that their chariots would become bogged down in these tar pits, and they would not be able to contend against the five kings. You still have the four and five separated, right? And the five kings of Canaan would be victorious over them. Does that make sense? It's kind of, we know our area. It's kind of like when the British came to the colonists. You know, We know our area. Well, what happens is these four kings come down and what the five kings hope would happen does not happen. Instead of, instead of them getting caught in the tar pits and them being defeated, the five kings discover that their army are the ones that get stuck in the tar pits these kings get caught, and they're completely routed. Some of the men from Canaan lose their lives in the tar pits. A few are able to escape to the hills. Don't know the exact result of all the kings. That How the word of God is phrased there doesn't necessarily mean that the kings themselves, except for Sodom, were individuals who died in the tar pits. But, but men, individuals, lose their lives. And so what happens is that as a result of this victory, the four kings ransack Sodom and Gomorrah in these cities that are represented here. They just ransack them. They plunder them. They take away their possessions, their goods. And they take away their people. And they begin to return home. And as they're on their way home, a message arrives at the tent doorway of, of Abram. And no doubt this messenger was dispatched by Lot. Because you see, 
Lot, in the initial move and separation from Abram, was outside of Sodom, but now he's in Sodom. He's completely assimilated into the lifestyle of the world. Though he has not given himself over to sexual sin and some of the sins that were present in the context of that society, he has assimilated his life with that of the world. The distinction is lost that should have been there. And he is in the city, and he is one that is carried away. Abram receives the news that the kings of Canaan have lost the battle. And Lot has been carried away with all of his possessions. Now, what, what could Lot, how could Lot have responded to this, uh, this situation? Well, he could have said, you know, Lot should have known better. He shouldn't have gone down there. And after all, he's really getting what he deserves. He could have taken the posture where he was not going to do anything. But rather, Abram responds by gathering together a group of men. And he, the reason why he goes to battle, I believe, is, is twofold. One is, is illustrated for us and, and explicitly stated, his kinsmen. One he loves, a family member has been taken into captivity, and his love for Lot, for his nephew, overrides everything else that might be his concern at that time. Does Abram have the size of army that he's going to go up against when he goes to rescue Lot? Is Abram in a context where he is, his, his well-being, his safety is, is going to be compromised? It is. This is the position where he is. But his love for Lot is so extreme and, and so intact that he discerns, determines that he will go and seek to rescue his nephew. But there's something else that is evidenced in the context of this love. And that is he is also gracious towards his nephew. Because you'll remember that when they separated in Genesis, the 13th chapter, Lot chose for himself what he saw was the best portion, and he, left over, he gave the rest kind of over to Abram. Lot didn't treat Abram with the respect that he deserved. He chose for himself what his eyes had focused upon. But Abram, it's been all washed away. He loves Lot, and he acts graciously towards him, in his activity as he gathers together his group. Now we see in the scriptures that, that Abram had established an alliance. He'd established an alliance with three other kind of rulers or leaders in his area. These individuals were not believers in the covenant that Abram had made with the Lord. They were not part of the covenant promises that God had made with Abram, who initiated the covenant. They were individuals who lived in the area. They were unbelievers, but they gathered together and they said, let us, let us unite our forces together so that we can protect ourselves against other individuals that may come against us. And so Abram has this alliance. 
Now the scriptures tell us that Abram had 318 men who were trained in warfare. Men trained in warfare. That means that there had to be some preparation prior to this. That means that there had to be some sense that they were aware that they were under threat and individuals had to be trained so that they could protect themselves, right? He's got 318 men, and the scriptures tell us that with these men, he begins to pursue or he begins to go after these four kings that have taken away uh, the inhabitants of Sodom, Gomorrah, and their possessions. Okay, so we're We've kind of made it's been a, we've been plowing here, but I hope we're together. We've made it through kind of the historical context now, finally, of what is taking place. Now, it seems to me that while this may not necessarily be the main point of the text, it is nevertheless a point that must be made. We come now to the Christian and conflict in the world. Abram takes 318 men and he pursues those who have been victorious in this battle that has just taken place. Whether or not the alliance that he made with others went together with him after these individuals, we do not know. They may very well have. But they nevertheless are a band that is tremendously outsized. And what we see is that Abram is committed to war. He's committed to conflict. Now, when I was growing up, you have to reach back a little ways, but when I was growing up, the Vietnam War conflict was taking place. And during that time, there was a great debate in certain circles as to whether or not war was biblical. And there were individuals that were professed pacifists and what have you. And this was a debate that took place. And while we not, do not necessarily have that uh, same question posed before us today that we did back then, nevertheless, I think it's important to just briefly touch upon it. Touch upon it. You will notice here that in this passage of Scripture, Abram goes to war. And Abram is the father of our faith who goes to war. And notice when we come down uh, partway through the text, more than halfway through the verses that we read this morning, we see that after Abram has achieved victory, Melchizedek goes out to meet him, does he not? And when Melchizedek goes out to meet him, does he chastise him because he has gone into conflict? He does not. He does not chastise him because he's gone into conflict. As a matter of fact, he affirms that what he has done is right. He has gone forward to wage a warfare, or warfare that needed to be waged. Now, I'm not going to get into the context this morning of what's valid warfare and what's not. I'm just simply making a statement for the fact that the pacifist perspective in relationship to military and war is not, I believe, biblical. We'll discover that when we look at the scriptures that God oftentimes fought for the people of Israel, did he not? He routed. He routed the Assyrian army, didn't he? We see a number of times. We see, that, we see that God raised up nations and he brought them low. How was it that that was done? 
But it was done as a result of conflict. It was done as a result of, of war, was it not? We look at the whole issue of judgment that came upon the people of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It came as a result of conflict. It was a significant point in the birthing of uh, the church or the, or, 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 or the spreading out of the gospel uh, throughout the world, this that came. You remember that uh, the Apostle Paul, John's told us on numerous occasions, was chained to what? The Praetorian Guard. He's told us on numerous occasions. And individuals came to Christ as a result of being chained to him. And after they came to Christ, the Apostle Paul certainly looked at him and said, you must leave the military. You know? But it is not. This individual maintains the, these individuals maintain the position that they had before they believed. In Luke, the third chapter, verses 13 and 14, the Pharisees come to John the Baptist and say, what must we do? And he directs them as what they must do if there's a new life to be experienced in their hearts. And, and soldiers, it says, came to him and they said, what must we do now that we believe? And John the Baptist said, uh, don't extort anyone. Don't falsely accuse someone. Be satisfied with the wages that you have. Didn't say you need to leave the military. He just said, this is how to live your life in the context of where you are. And so we see, I believe, in the scriptures that there is valid support for the fact that warfare takes place in the context of our world. It's not always for righteous purposes. We're, certainly we're not righteous purposes here that these people fought against one another. There's a righteous purpose for which Abram went after Lot, that he might secure him and bring him back, that he might experience freedom and, and liberty. But nevertheless, war exists. It takes place in the context of society, and it's not something, uh, I, I believe there's substantial evidence in Scripture to support uh, the value and the need for military. We need war, or we need uh, now, even preservation of peace in society when we begin to think about police and what have you. So enough said there. Let's move on to the next thing. And I want to try to be as quickly as I can to get to the point that follows. The conflict that takes place is a conflict that Abram is involved with. It's a conflict that draws him into the affairs and the matters of the world. Right? If Abram stays out of this conflict, everything is just going to continue to go on the path that it was, that it was on. He's re removing himself from society, in a sense, if he does not go into conflict. But because of his love and his commitment to Lot, and there's some other reasons why I don't want to have time to go into them, but because of that, he, he enters in to the context of society so that he might influence the affairs of society. Now, why is it that we say that this morning? Why would I mention that this morning as something that's critical? Abram is drawn into a context of, of involvement in the world that he saw was necessary. Now, in the context of the Christian faith, there are different views in relationship to how it is that we relate to the society in which we live. I knew a gentleman who pastored a fairly large church out in California a number of years ago. He was an individual I 
deeply admired. His ability to uh, expound the scriptures verse by verse, just amazing, uh, wonderful man of God. Even this past week, as I was reading something about his life, I read that someone was critical of his life, and I was curious what it was that they would say. And what they said was this, that this gentleman, actually his name was Ray Stedman, pastor, he encouraged people to be involved in organizations and societies in the context of the world. Rather than having them kind of step back and be focused primarily upon the church. Now the question is, is that when we come into the kingdom of God, are we called to recede from the world? We live in the world. Our shoulders rub. We rub shoulder to shoulder with people that are in the context of the world. And though there is a primary focus in our lives, in our surrender to Christ, and that that must never be compromised, nevertheless, we are to live in this world, this society. Now, God has extended a common grace to mankind. And in the context of that common grace, God restrains evil. Do we see evil restrained in the world in which we live? Is man as bad as he possibly could be? Or do we look at society and we see that society is somewhat restrained? There's something that restrains them. Even in the context of those who do not believe, there's a restraint upon their lives. Do we not see that in the context of the world that there are individuals who may not believers, but they believe the same things we do about rightness and justice? Do we see that? I believe that we do see that. Even though they are not born again, these individuals are in the midst of the world and society, and they are contending for that which is right. God's common grace exists so that society might exist, so that there might be civil order, so there might be social order in the way that people relate to one another, so that sin might be curbed, so that there might be a certain sense of peace and order that comes to this world. If you take the common grace out of, out of the world, the common grace of God out of the world, everything falls apart. Now, what is the place of the Christian to be? We will leave it to those individuals who are not believers. We will leave it to those individuals who are in the context of common grace, and we will remove ourselves because we will restrict ourselves in the confines of the walls of the church. We will look at the gifts and the abilities that God has given us, and we will step back from the world, and we will express ourselves in the context of church within its walls alone. You see what I'm saying? Will we isolate? Will we become involved? I would suggest to you that what Abraham did, Abram, I, I, must, I always get mixed to Abram, Abram. He's Abram still. He, he involved himself in the context of the world. And by involving himself in the context of the world, order was restored again to that land and to that area. Wasn't it? He triumphed over these kings. And order was restored. If he had not involved himself, that order would not have been there. Even though there was evil in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah. We as believers are called, I believe, to interact with, to be involved with individuals that labor in the context of the world. We are separate from the world in our belief. 
But there are times when we may very well find ourselves shoulder to shoulder with individuals who are in the world as we contend for those things which are right. And so it happens in the context of, of causes that take place. You know, one of the immediate things that individuals, but not everybody's called to, to do the same thing, but individuals sometimes who believe and don't believe, they contend for, for pro-life. Individuals sometimes are involved in organizations, context of society, like they may be involved in, um, what are they called? Those parent teachers, PTAs, you know? But what does a PTA do? What's, what, what's it supposed to do? What's it supposed to accomplish? It's bring some sort of order, right? right? And the involvement brings order, so there's a certain amount of order in the context of schools. You, you can go on almost anywhere where Individuals are active in the context of society, and as a result of the activity, it brings order. And when individuals are called to do so, it's, it's important, I believe, for them to be involved in those contexts, because it helps preserve order in life. It's true in the context of our workforce as well. You know, when John Calvin was pastoring in the context of Geneva, he cautioned people to be very careful when it was that they changed jobs, when they moved from one job to another. And do you know why he did it? Because he was concerned about the disruption of order. The order that made that society function and work. Your work, where you work every day. How many of you work in a place where you're the only one that benefits from what you're doing? Well, we hope we get a paycheck, don't we? But when you labor, you're laboring to impact society, where you live. You are shoulder to shoulder in the context of the world to preserve an order that is here. Now let me leap ahead for a second before I come back again. Why is that order necessary? Well, if you don't have that order, you have society dissolved. If you have society dissolved, do you have any new believers coming into the kingdom of God? No, because society is gone. The common grace of God is active in the context of society so people might be preserved so that as a history continues to march forward to the consummation of all things, individuals are gathered together in the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul said that the, basically that the world exists for the church. That's not how the world looks at it. So when we are in the context, if you're an educator, you're, you're, you're preserving order in society. I know Sushila, you know, it's, so sometimes you might, might want to just ring the necks of some of the students that are in their classroom. I don't know. <laughs> kind of what, I'm not sure I'm gaining much ground here. You know, but, but God calls us into these areas where we're involved with the world and we do not compromise our faith. We realize that there's a distinctiveness there, but we contend for order. Does that make sense? And so I guess the criticism that was leveled against Ray Stedman could also be leveled against me because I believe that we should be involved in the context of our world. And all of us are called in different ways, not the same way. But I'll tell you, every, every time I think about things like this, I think the value of every Christian's life. Because God has placed you in a unique place to live for him there. And your living for him in that place helps promote the grace of God in the context of this world and prepares a world after such a manner that more believers might be birthed into the kingdom of God. Well, that's a Christian 
That's the Christian as he is in conflict for righteous purposes in the world. And now we come to the issue, if you can labor with me a little bit longer, to spiritual conflict. The Christian in conflict in the spiritual realm, of course, all of us here know that that doesn't exist, right? <laughs> but we realize that there's an adversary. There's enemies that we face. In Genesis, the third chapter, God said after Adam and Eve had sinned and he addresses Eve and the serpent in the garden, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity, be enmity between the woman's seed and your seed. And at the very beginning, the dawn of history we, we, of mankind, we discover that there's this warfare that takes place. There's this warfare that takes place between the seed of the enemy and the seed of the woman. And Satan was out to destroy the church from the very beginning. From the very beginning. And you can see why it's so. Because in the very beginning, Adam and Eve, well, not the very beginning, but a short period after the very beginning, Adam and Eve give birth to children, and one slays the other. Who, who slays the one that is slain? It's the unrighteous seed slaying the seed of the righteous. At that point, had... Satan been triumphant, there would have been no church. There would have been no Messiah that would have come forth because God's blessing rested upon this one that was slain. But in fact, there was another to come. And this other that came, then kept by his, by his birth and presence, the promise was kept intact, right? But we look throughout history and we, the church history and we see that the enemy is constantly after the church to defeat it, to destroy it. Now the word of God tells us about the conflict that we face. It's identified in a number of places in Ephesians 6, chapter verse 12. It says that we, and we know this to be true, wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and the powers and the rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. We are engaged in a conflict that is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Now, we look elsewhere and we see in the book of John that the scriptures tell us we wage warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It seems to be expanded there a little bit. And then we look at the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 says we wrestle with the residue of our fallen nature that still clings so closely to us. There's a warfare, there's a battle that goes on. That which I want to do, I not do not do because there's that influence of my past life that still remains even though I've been regenerate and born again I still find myself struggling with issues and in, in life and we discover that in the context of our lives I just wrote down a few things we struggle with uh, I'm not going to amplify them and just mention them that we struggle against in the context of life is, is is it not true that the enemy comes against us and we find sometimes our conflicts to be in areas that were present before we were born again. And some of the times there are issues that new, new things rise on the horizon, but just consider the different things individuals struggle with. Sometimes individuals struggle with lying. We've looked at that in the past as it related to Abram. And the church must have struggled with lying from time to time because in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says, put off lying. You know, just, just be truthful with one another. Don't lie. We see that there are sexual sins that take place, the tempt and 
pull upon the individuals who believe. We see that covetousness and greed is a sin. It's a, it's a temptation. The Apostle Paul, I believe, struggled with covetousness because he specifically mentions it in the context of things we struggle with. I think it was probably his struggle. Individuals struggle with drink and with drugs. Individuals struggle with gossip and meddling in the lives of others. That can be destructive, can't it? Pride, envy, anger. And one of the things I think is so prevalent in our society today is, you know, I, I hope it's diminishing in me, but, but selfishness. We live in a very selfish society, very self-focused. I'm not so sure that in the context of the church with the focus of our messages that we help people so much on that when we focus specifically on people and their problems and the thought that God's desire really is from the atonement is that we'll have a better life here. So these are things we struggle against. But the scriptures tell us that in the midst of these struggles, how many, how many can relate to Romans 7? That, that which I, that's what I don't want to do, I do. And that's what I want to do, I can't do. And the struggle is back and forth. I can't go into the context of that, that whole chapter. But if you read that and you stop reading it too early, you can really get discouraged, right? Let's, let's assemble the people of God together so we can tell them how they can go out and be defeated every week. You know, it's a guy, oh, Thank you for the benediction. It's now over and I don't have to think about that anymore. <laughs> you see, Abram goes to battle and the amazing thing is this. Over overwhelming odds, he defeats the enemy. And let me tell you that in, when we are in the context of the conflicts of life and the trials and the temptations that are set against us, we face overwhelming odds. How many of us can change anything in ourselves? We cannot. A leopard cannot change its spots. We are faced with overwhelming odds. But even as Abram was victorious in his day, with that small band of men routing, these, <laughs> routing the enemy and chasing them to the borders of the land, <laughs> and they let him go. <laughs> he was victorious over them. So does God hold victory in the context of our lives as we face struggles against sin and temptation. We don't win at all. You look through Romans chapter 7 and, and, he, and, 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 and Paul is working his way through this whole conflict and he comes to the very end and he says, who shall save me from this sin? Who shall save me from this body of death? And his response is, thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ that He is the one that will give us victory. And we will have victory ultimately at the end. That's where his focus is, but we, primarily in that text, but we will have victories here. We will be defeated from time to time. But we will have victory and triumphs as well. Not maybe as many triumphs as we'd like to have. But we will have and we will experience triumphs. Now, Abram, and let me, let me just say that, you know, there are, 
There are some sins that I know I commit and I don't think too much about them because I can't see them, you know. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm just kind of cruising through the world, you know, just going along. And then there, there's some areas in a person's life where we realize that a, a person could be held captive. If you've if ever been in a place where you have faced an enemy that has held you captive and you have been set free, you're thankful for the victory that's been purchased for you in Christ. There is a liberty that comes in that context that cannot be expressed by words. Abram's victorious over his enemy. And we look at him and we say, Lord, as Abram is victorious, help me to be victorious in my life. He, he returns to Canaan in verse 17. And here, Abram has this great triumphant experience. He's, he's just like the zenith of his life almost at this point because he returns and he is not a king, but he comes back as a conquering king, doesn't he? He has routed Chuck and his cohorts. And he's got all the goods with him, all the people, and they're coming back to Canaan. And as they're approaching the city of Gomorrah, the, the king of, of, and, and Sodom, the king of Sodom goes out to meet him. But before the king reaches Sodom, all of a sudden, there appears this figure. And his name is Melchizedek. He only appears three times in the scripture. He's, he appears here a very short period of time, and he's gone. He's referred to in Psalm 110, and again in Hebrews chapter 7. You can look more about his life if you want to read those verses. But not a lot is known about him. We don't know, we don't know anything about his genealogy. He says he's without beginning and end. Well, it just refers to the fact that there was no record of his birth. There's no record of his birth. There's no record of his death. He just appears on the scene. He's not part of the people of God, but somehow God has preserved him and saved him, and he is a priest in Jerusalem. It's Salem, but it was Jerusalem at that time. He's a priest there. And the scriptures tell us that he, well, and his name means king of righteousness. Now, when we look at Melchizedek, we see that he goes out and he greets Abram. And he says, blessed be Abram by God most high. He's putting the blessing of God upon his name. Much like number six, when we go from here and we, we sing it, we're putting the blessing of God upon the people. We're saying, when you go from this place, God's blessing rests upon you to give you power, to empower you, and to preserve you, to protect you as you're going throughout the life. Maybe not so much will you experience all of it in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm, you will be preserved, protected, empowered. To live, to keep persevering. This name is put upon Abram. Abram, the God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth, blesses you. And this, this word for creator is not only one who created all things, but he's the one that protects all things. 
He has blessed you. Look back upon the battle that you have just waged and realize that you have gone there and you've been protected, not because of your great strength, not because of your great might, but because the power of the Most High God was resting upon your life. And he says, blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Just when Abram could have been feeling kind of full of himself, tempted perhaps, I think the enemy would have been close at hand, that he had done this by himself and his own clever battle scheme. You know. Before he can get to that point of having, being elated over that, God comes to him in the person of Melchizedek and he says, God is the one that gave you this victory. It's no time for you to be consumed with yourself here. It's God who did this for you. And these words resonate in the head of, of Abram because he mouths them back later on. So we, we think about this blessing that has come to Abram as he's been victorious. And Melchizedek reminds him. And Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. And it reminds us that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. You know, Abram was a type of Christ because he went after Lot when he sinned, didn't he? Or when he was lost, when he was taken away. Does that remind us of ourselves? That God elected us in eternity and he saved us in time and he protects us throughout the entirety of our lives. It reminds us of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is called in Jeremiah the king of righteousness. And in 1 John he's called the righteous one. He is the one that preserves us and keeps us and holds us. The one that enables us and empowers us through the spirit to attain any victory in our lives that is attained. It is Christ. It is Christ who does this for us. The Father said, uh, the Word of God says that all, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me, what? I will keep. And he says, and in the end of his earthly ministry, as his disciples were gathered around him, as he was praying to the Lord, he said, I have kept all that you have given me. And he keeps us to the end. And so we wage a spiritual conflict, a spiritual war. There, I know there's all, all kinds of verses here I didn't mention this morning. You'd be thankful I didn't mention them all. But we are drawn into conflict in the context of this world and the context of the spiritual realm. And frankly, you know, there was a time when I kind of thought I had this idea down about this thing down about spiritual conflict. I was understanding something about it, you know. I, I don't know. I don't know when sometimes I'm in the midst of struggle if I'm fighting the world, the flesh, the devil. I don't know sometimes when it's the residue of that which has been left over from before I was a Christian. I don't know if there's some sort of special attention that 
I am receiving because of the spiritual realities that surround my life. But this I know, that though I may not know all that is there is to know about my enemy, I know that if I keep my focus upon Christ, it is there that I find the answer. Jesus Christ loved those he came to save. And those he came to save are, have, and will be saved. And he will keep those that are his to the very end. I encourage you, in the midst of the conflicts and struggles that you face in this life, that hope will ever be held before you as you see the face of Christ before you.